You're listening to the podcast of Christ Walk Church in Fernandina Beach, Florida, where we exist to inspire people to follow Jesus every day. We hope that these messages encourage and challenge you to live for something more. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can find us online at thechristwalk.com. Thanks again for listening. Now here's today's message. Well, good morning, Christ Walk Church. How's everybody doing today? So good to see all of you and be with all of you Um, If you've got your Bibles or a smart device, I want to invite you to turn with me or swipe with me to uh, the New Testament. Um, In case you're unaware, the Bible is um, comprised of two kind of larger divisions of Scripture, the first being the Old Testament, the second being the New Testament. And um, we're going to be in the third book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke. Um, It's where we're going to start today. We call those first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, because gospel means good news. And those first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are good news in particular because they share with us the story of the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to land in Luke chapter 1 here momentarily. Um, Before we jump into the message today, I just want to give a shout out to all of uh, the people that came out to serve at our Southside Elementary School Serve Day yesterday. Um, We had an incredible time out there and knocked out the project in in no time, just like a couple hours. We had so many people um, show up, and so I'm so grateful, so thankful um, for all of you who brought your rakes and your shovels and um, lugged mulch around and and did the weeding and everything, like um, the, uh, the start to finish, um, you know, the before and after, it looks incredible. And the school was just over the moon excited about um, the involvement of our church, and they haven't uh, stopped bragging about us and telling people um, what a great job that we did. So I want to thank you all um, for coming out and helping make that possible. And there's going to be um, continued opportunities like that in the future to serve not only Southside, but many of our other Kingdom Builders partners. And while we're talking about Kingdom Builders, um, I also want to bring up um, something about one of our other Kingdom Builders partners, which is um, known as ARC, or the Association of of related churches of which we are a part. And ARC is um, uh, an organization that began with um, planting churches in mind. To uh, They have a, a goal or a vision to put a life-giving church in every community. Um, it started out in the United States and they have since um, expanded to go globally. And so since the year 2000, um, through ARC, 1,057 churches have been planted. In 2022, this year, there were 63 new churches planted, including 11 that were planted outside of the United States. So they're going global with this thing. And um, this year, 14,330 people attended those churches on launch day, which resulted in 556 people giving their life to Jesus Christ and getting saved. Yeah. So this year alone, ARC 
has invested more than $7 million in church planting efforts. And you and I, Christ Walk Church, those of you that support our Kingdom Builders efforts, you have been a part of all of that. So I want to say thank you so much for your generosity in helping to make that happen. I believe in the power of church plants and putting life-giving churches in cities and communities where there are none so that we can reach people with the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel. And so you are making a difference in the lives of people, both domestically and globally, that you may never, ever meet. But you are helping to change their eternity because of your generosity and your faithfulness and support. And for those of you that would like to be a part of this, um, and perhaps you're not supporting Kingdom Builders, but, but stuff like this is interesting to you, and you want to jump on board and, and get involved next week, um, next Sunday, we will be taking up um, our Kingdom Builders end of the year offering. And so that will be an opportunity for um, everyone to give and to sow in to these efforts um, that, that we, we have here at Christ Walk Church with the people, the places, the partnerships, um, and the programs that we are connected with through Kingdom Builders to help spread the message of the gospel, add value, and make a difference um, in the lives of those not only in our backyard, but across the globe. And so next week, I'll be sharing even some more stories about some of the ways that you all have helped to make a difference in the world around us. And um, this is an opportunity for you to give. This offering will serve as seed money to launch Kingdom Builders again for the year 2023. And then there will be ongoing opportunities for you to give and support Kingdom Builders throughout the year as always. And so please don't misunderstand. I'm not asking anyone for money this morning. But what I am asking is that you would ask God how he would have you and your family to participate in Kingdom Builders over and above your regular tithes and offering. And then whatever he tells you to do, do that. Cool? Cool. All right. So today we are in part two of a series called A Weary World Rejoices. Um, as we continue our way through Advent. And uh, this series, is, it takes its inspiration from a line in the song, Oh Holy Night, which we sang earlier today. Um, and in this series, we're taking a look at both the how and the why of why we can rejoice even in the midst of the weariness that's often brought on by the season of Christmas. And so I'm gonna light our third Advent candle um, this morning, this is the third Sunday of Advent. We started um, back with the uh, prophet's candle. Maybe I'm not going to light it. There we go. We started back with the prophet's candle, which represents the hope of the nation of Israel, the people that were looking forward to their coming Messiah. And then we continue on with the Bethlehem candle, which represents the Prince of Peace that entered into the world on that night in Bethlehem when Mary gave birth to Jesus. And then today we light what is known as the shepherd's candle. And it is a unique candle because it is pink, which is the liturgical color representing joy. And it's known as the shepherd's candle because the angel 
appeared to them, bringing them good tidings of great joy. For unto you this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the angels told them, you will, you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And so these shepherds, these, these nobodies, these outcasts out in the countryside, they were delivered this incredible message of joy. And so that's where today's message begins with this idea of joy. A weary world rejoices. Like, how do we welcome this Christ child into our hearts, into our lives? And how can we find a reason and the ability, the strength to be able to rejoice in the midst of all the chaos and the madness, right? Anybody been watching the World Cup? What's going on right now? Any soccer fans? I know I got one right up here in the front, big time soccer fan. I grew up playing, um, playing soccer um, and tennis were my two primary sports and um, really, really involved in soccer. My dad was my coach um, for many years of my life uh, growing up. And um, when we were home for Thanksgiving, I drove by um, the soccer fields where I used to play and we spent many, many Saturdays um, as, as a kid. And, and, um, I was just filled with all those emotions as I reminisced, um, those times together and, um, then connecting the dots with watching the world cup, which is one of my favorite sporting events every four years. It's, it's so exciting and, and to, to see and to be a part of. And, and even when, um, you know, after the United States gets knocked out, I still watch because there's, there's like crazy things that happen in the world cup. Number one, um, adult grown men soccer players are some of the sissiest people. <laughs> can I say that from the pool? I guess I can because I just did. Um, like you barely bumped me on the knee and I'm going to writhe around in pain on the grass for three minutes. You know, like I don't understand that. So I, I watch it because I think that's hilarious. But what I really watch it for is there's, there's nothing quite like, I mean, you know, it's a 90 minute match plus stoppage time. And, you know, often ends and scores like one to nothing. And, and just the excitement of seeing someone, you know, score a goal and represent their country. And then they, they flip out and go crazy and the, the crowd's going wild. But what I love more than anything, and we've had a few of these here um, of late in the World Cup, is when they're tied at the end of regulation. And then they're tied at the end of the extra time. And then it goes to the penalty kick shootout. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like you can feel the tension, like, you know, escalate. You could, you could cut it with a knife. And, and I love watching it because there is no, you can just see it on the players' faces, the way that they approach that. You, you can see it as they cut away to shots of people in the stands and you will have, uh, you see all these people and all of a sudden they're praying. Like I've, I've seen that time and time again. I wonder who they're praying to and if, if that God cares about soccer and if, you know, if, he's, if he's doing anything um, about it. But, but you, you cut away and so like all the, it's, it's immediate like anxiety, right? And just like worrying, people are chewing on their fingernails and, and, and um, you know, one team ends up celebrating victoriously and the other team finds itself in the midst of the agony of defeat. But in the middle of all of that, like there's just something so enthralling about 
just that level of anxiety. Like, I, I don't even have a dog in the race, and, like, I get nervous watching it, right? Like, what's going to happen? And I feel like that sometimes, like, the season of Christmas can be a lot like that. You know, like we enter into these experiences and, and, and this, the, the things like these players, they, they, they've played their whole life and, and they've worked so hard to get to this moment and they finally get there and it's, it's something that they've looked forward to and then all of a sudden the, the anxiety and the worry, like it just rushes in and it crushes us and Christmas can be a lot like that. We've, we've walked through an entire year. We've, we've waited so long for it to get here and it finally does and man, the anxiety and the worry that is brought on by the season can just be crushing to us. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10, it's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It says, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. But my purpose, this is Jesus talking, he says, my purpose is to give a rich and satisfying life. So when I think about this season that we're in right now, and as it connects to this verse, I believe that the devil wants nothing more than to steal our joy away from us, particularly, especially around the holidays. He wants to ensure that this season becomes one that is filled with dread instead of one that is filled with delight. And he will do everything that he possibly can. He will stop at nothing to rob us of our joy at every single turn. And what happens is, is we, we enter into this season with all kinds of different areas of, of struggle and adversity just in our regular day-to-day lives. Perhaps for some of us, it's maybe in our marriage or for others of us, perhaps it's with our kids and our family. Maybe for some of us, it's with our health, or maybe it's a job thing, or a financial issue. Perhaps there's some of us that, that maybe are dealing with um, the loss of a loved one. Maybe this is the first Christmas that there's an empty seat at the table, and a few less presents under the tree. You know, and the truth is, is that, that once December rolls around, all of these issues, all of these struggles, all of this adversity that comes from stuff like this that we experience in our life, it's, it's not magically erased by the Christmas season. Instead, what happens is, is December rolls around and, and we add all the expectations of the Christmas season into the mix and it only exacerbates the issues that we've been dealing with previously. You know, Andy Williams sings that song, you know, it's the most wonderful time of the year. I think maybe he missed an opportunity to put the correct words in there. It's the most worrisome time of the year. And for a lot of us, that's like, that's the reality of our Christmas experience. It's, it's not very wonderful. It's often very worrisome. But yet, we're supposed to be full of joy in the middle of the season because, right, it's Christmas after all. But then when we find ourselves in a place where we're not very joyful. And instead, we're, we're riddled with anxiety and, and we find ourselves in the middle of worry. Then what happens is, is we end up feeling guilty for not being joyful because we know, especially those of us who are believers, we know what we're supposed to do. We know how it's supposed to be. 
And so when, when we're not joyful in the middle of that, we end up feeling guilty. And then what happens is, is the enemy leverages that to make us feel less than which only adds to our problems and then sends us into this cycle that gets repeated over and over and over, compounding like a snowball in our life. And, and the tension really with all of this is that at first glance, we take a look at the nativity and it seems anxiety-free, right? We look at that and there, it's, it's, we think of this little baby in this little cradle, and you see Mary and Joseph, and in this, in this depiction like, that we have here on the stage, like, like in a lot of depictions, you know, Mary and Joseph, they're there, and they've got their, their heads bowed and their, their prayer hands together. And, and in that moment, everything seems calm and serene. At least that's what we're led to believe. But I believe that the first Christmas had the potential to bring about an overwhelming amount of worry and anxiety. And so let's jump in and take a look at, at what that might have looked like. Luke chapter one, we'll pick up in verse 26. Luke chapter one, beginning with verse 26, it says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. And Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, Literally, what this word in the Greek means is, he, he says greetings, it literally means rejoice. Rejoice, be full of joy, favored woman, for the Lord is with you. Verse 29, confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think of what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus, and he will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. And the angel repl replied in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby, will be, uh, the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. And what's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. And Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. And so we, we have this account of this announcement, the angel coming to Mary, telling her what is going to take place. And, and Mary's first response in the midst of all of this, despite the fact that the angel is telling her to rejoice, to be full of joy, Mary's first response is one of concern. She says, how can this happen? Like, Hey, you're not making any sense here. Don't you get it? I'm a virgin. What are you talking about? I'm going to give birth to a child. This doesn't make any sense. And, and in that moment, like imagine the weight of what that angel placed on Mary's shoulders right there. Like imagine, consider, consider the weight that, that she was suddenly now finding herself under. Number one, she was visited by an angel. This was not like a common occurrence. 
Like, I've never seen an angel before. And I would say many of you would say the same thing. But here's what I do know about what happens when an angel visits a person. One of the first things out of the angel's mouth to the person is, don't be afraid. Don't freak out. Okay? So, like, this is not, like, a common occurrence. It's also, like, it's unsettling to people whenever they see this. The, the Bible says in, in, in the New Living Translation that Mary was both confused and disturbed by this encounter with the angel. Okay? So, number one, she's visited by angel. Number two, the angel tells her that she's going to become a teenage mother. Now, carrying a baby and giving birth to a baby is no joke. I've watched my wife do it twice, and it's amazing. And add into the fact that now Mary is going to do this as a teenager, and at this point as an unwed teenager, right? Like, Sarah and I, we were older than teenagers. We were married. We had some things going for us. And I know how difficult it was when we brought Luke and Avery into the world. And I watched the things that she dealt with. I can't imagine what Mary was about to experience. On top of this, not only was she going to have a baby, but her, her baby was going to be the son of God. Like, uh, like the weight of that, come on, like as I'm reading this, like my mind is just, I, I can't, I cannot fathom what she's dealing with and what she's trying to wrap her arms around, wrap her head around. And, and the angel just, you know, when he shows up, he, he just announces it so matter of factly. And then this teenage girl in the midst of all of this transition and change that she's already experiencing is, is now having to embrace the weight of this message that not only are you going to have a baby, but your baby is going to be the son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a lot of pressure, right? I'm sure in that moment, like when, when people found out that Mary was pregnant in the midst of this scenario, they were probably like, O-M-G. And Mary was like, yes, literally. <laughs> Some of y'all will get that on the drive home. And you'll go, he's funny. Matthew gives us another account of this story that, that's going on, and, and which adds another wrinkle to the mix. In, in chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, it says, This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. And as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid. There it is again. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son. And you were to name him Jesus. For he will save his people 
from their sins. Not only was she visited by an angel, not only was she going to become a teenage mother, not only was she going to have a baby and her baby be the son of God, but her relationship with Joseph, this man that she was getting ready to marry, it almost ended before it ever got started. See, he knew that they hadn't consummated their relationship. And so the only logical conclusion that he could have come to is that she had been unfaithful. Any of us would have thought that. And no doubt, moving forward with the relationship caused people to talk and jump to scandalous conclusions of what was really going on inside there. And can you believe that Mary did this? And what about Joseph? And who does that mean? Like, imagine Like as they moved forward with this relationship that everywhere they went, there would be the people giving them the side eye, whispering, elbowing, nudging each other everywhere they went. You're going to have to bear the weight of those decisions and what it looked like to carry out God's plan for her life. It continues In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, it says, At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was the descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea. David's ancient home, and he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee, and he took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. So on top of everything else, in her last trimester, a week before giving birth, Mary had to journey with Joseph all the way to Bethlehem because of this stupid census that had to be taken, Right? I can remember when Sarah was pregnant with Luke. It was about six weeks before his due date, and I was scheduled to go to Germany to speak at a youth conference. And Sarah's doctor said, I'm sorry, she can't go with you. You're not allowed to travel that late in your pregnancy because of the potential complications. And what if you're in Germany and something had like this this whole big thing? And, And so we really struggled with the fact that Sarah couldn't travel with me. Here we have Mary, and she's getting ready to give birth in in like a week. And she's having to go to Bethlehem. Nazareth to Bethlehem was was 90 miles, okay? So to, to put that in perspective, it's roughly the same distance from Fernandina to either Daytona going south or Savannah going north, all right? And people in this culture and climate that we're talking about as we read here in the scriptures, they they could typically travel at an average speed of about two and a half miles per hour for up to eight hours each day because of the terrain and the the just the things that, that, that they would have had to have had to have, have dealt with. And so they could make it a, approximately about 20 miles a day traveling under the best of circumstances. And so at that rate, it would have taken someone approximately four and a half days to make that journey, right? Can you imagine, hey, you want to go to Daytona? Sure, I'll see you in four and a half days. We can't, like, we don't, that doesn't even compute with us right now. And considering that Mary was pregnant, some scholars believe that it would have taken her and Joseph up to twice the amount of time to make the journey. 
And so consider the amount of supplies alone that it would have taken for a pregnant woman to make a nine-day trip. Any men in the room? Can I get a witness? You can imagine the difficulty, right? And on top of that, this would have been during the rainy season, and temperatures at night would have likely been cold, not to mention the rough terrain that they would have had to travel over. And then on top of that, when when the couple reached their destination, there's no vacancy. There's no place for them to stay. There's no room with their family. There's no room in the inn. And so they had to settle for the stable, which was probably uh, a kind of cave carved out of some rock that was used to keep um, some sheep and then then the, the donkeys of other travelers that would have been coming to Bethlehem at this time for the census. And speaking of those travelers, there there are a lot of scholars that believe that Mary and Joseph were likely not the only ones in need of a place to stay. And so that there were others, there's a good chance there were others also who had traveled to Bethlehem that were staying in the stable with them. And so moms, any of you that have given birth, I just want you to imagine, consider the idea that, that when it came time for your baby to be delivered and you go to the hospital and you show up and you, and you get settled in your birthing suite that the doctor opens the door and invites everyone from the waiting room to come in and watch. Right? Like, no way! We had a list when Sarah was pregnant. and We had a list. These people are approved. Everyone else, no, turn them away. So he had to stop at the little desk and like, hey, we want to see Blake and Sarah. Oh, are you on the list? It was like six people. It was like our family and like one other person. I can't Im- like, but Mary, here she is in the stable and it's dirty and it's dusty and there's sheep and there's donkeys and there's someone's Uncle Frank like right there in the corner <laughs> watching this all take place. How weird! So the cherry on top of all of this is that, that Mary would have had to potentially give birth in this strange place, in this, this out-of-the-way deal with complete and total strangers standing by watching. And yet Mary's first response was concern. It was, how is this going to happen? But Mary's final response is confidence. She says, may everything you have said about me come true. May everything you've said about me come true. We read in verse 38 what we read already. I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Later, when she's with Elizabeth and she's recounting the story and telling her of everything that happened in in verses 45 through 47, Elizabeth tells her, you are blessed because you believed the Lord would do what he said. And Mary responded, oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And so what we see here is that the key to overcoming our worries and anxiety is simply trust. It's trust. Elizabeth says, you're blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said he would do. You trusted in the Lord. And so in the midst of all of those overwhelming, anxiety-ridden, worrisome circumstances, Mary chose trust. And so she was able to praise and rejoice in the middle of it. See, trust turns our stressing into blessing. Trust will turn our worry into worship. Trust has a way of transforming our anxieties into adoration because trust shifts the focus from our situation and places it on our Savior. That's what trust does. 
And Jesus talked about trust in his Sermon on the Mount when he said in Matthew chapter 6, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Don't worry. When it comes to worry and anxiety, what Jesus says is don't. He says, these things, in verse 32 of Matthew chapter 6, these things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Man, when I read that, that's a gut punch. That worry and anxiety is the stuff that dominates the thought, the mindset of unbelievers. I'm a pastor. And my life is full of worry and anxiety sometimes. Jesus says, this ought not be. For those of you that have placed your trust in me, this ought not be. Because this is what dominates the thoughts of unbelievers. But when you trust, that unlocks rejoicing so that we can be full of joy in the midst of all of this. So for the next few minutes, as we bring this message to a close, I want to hit you really, really quick with just some rapid fire. Four things we must do to overcome anxiety and worry in our life. Or simply put, this is how we trust God. This is what it looks like to trust God. If you're taking notes, write this down. The number one thing is to put God first. This is not like any mind-blowing rocket science kind of stuff. I'm going to say these things and you're going to go, duh. But I think we just need this reminder this morning. The first thing that we got to do to overcome our anxiety and worry, if we're, if we're going to trust God, then we've got to put God first. Matthew 6, Jesus says, Seek the kingdom of God above all else. And live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So really quick, just mentally, take a quick assessment of your life. The question that I would ask is, is God in the top spot when it comes to your priorities? Or have you perhaps allowed something else to take his rightful place over time? You didn't mean to, it wasn't intentional, but just over the days, the weeks, the months, You've allowed God to slip into second, third, fourth place, and there's something else that's climbed that ladder that's taken hold of his rightful seat. Are we giving God our best, or are we giving him the rest? Is, is, in our life, is, is God the main course, or is he the doggy bag of leftovers? If we're going to overcome anxiety and worry, we're going to trust God, then we've got to put him first. Second thing is we've got to pray. We've got to pray. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Paul writes, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. And then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard our hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Simply put, if it's big enough to worry about, then it's big enough to pray about. And before we talk to anybody else about what's going in our life, before we talk to anybody else about the problems, the, the adversity, the struggle, the things that we're dealing with, the, the weight that we are carrying, before we share that with anybody else, we need to make sure that we share it with the only one who can do anything about it in the first place. 
I think what gets us into trouble is, uh, is everybody knows our business except for the one that can do anything about it. And he knows our business, but he's just waiting on us to come to him and trust him with it. We got to put God first. We got to pray. Third thing we got to do is we got to seek God's will. If we're going to overcome anxiety, we're going to overcome worry, we're going to trust God with our life, we've got to seek his will. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Some of us are filled with such anxiety and worry because we're just not sure what decision to make. God, should I go this way or should I go this way? Should I take that job or should I take this job? Should I buy that house or should I live here? Should we move to this city or should we move to that city? Like all of these things that are just compounding upon us, creating tons of anxiety and worry. God says, if you'll just seek my will in all you do, I'm going to make the path straight. It's going to be easy for you to walk. And so some questions to consider when trying to determine God's will. It's kind of a checklist. First one is, does it align with Scripture? Does it align with Scripture? Look, anything that you feel like you hear God speaking to you that doesn't align with the things that he's already spoken in his word, that's not God. God is never going to tell you to do something that is going to be contradictory to what he's already told us to do through his word. So first and foremost, we got to be sure that whatever we believe God is speaking to us, does it align with his word? The second thing is, is Is this thing, is it going to strengthen my relationship with Jesus? Is it going to help me to grow and to become more like Christ? Is it going to give me opportunities to use my gifts, my skills, my abilities to fulfill the calling that God has placed on my life? If yes, that's probably a good indicator that perhaps that's God's will for you. If no, if it's not going to do that, if it's going to pull you further away from God and not allow you to to use those things, then of course that's not God's will for your life. And then the third and final thing is, when you're trying to choose between one thing or the other, you're trying to make a difficult decision, it's important to consider, what would the most godly person I know do in this situation? If you have a personal relationship with them, maybe go ask them. Lay out the scenario and, and hash through it. And, and what I've come to find is that if, if we'll kind of look at things through the lens of those three questions, does it align with scripture? Is it going to help me to grow in my faith? And would the most godly person, the, the person who, who I know in my life that their arrow is pointed in the direction of Jesus and they're becoming more and more like him each and every day, what decision would they make if they were me in this situation? When we look at our lives through those things in what happens is, is that, that it's, the, the path ahead begins to become clear. And then we just have to step out in faithful obedience. If we'll be intentional about gauging our decisions based on that checklist of questions, then the path ahead is going to materialize and, and the right doors are going to open and the wrong ones are going are, are to get closed and we'll be able to move forward in the, in, in the will of God and be exactly where he wants us to be. So put God first, pray, seek God's will. Number four, 
Make God your hope and confidence. Make God your hope and confidence. Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. says, but blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a river bank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. See, any, any area of doubt or insecurity in our life is simply an area that we haven't placed our hope and confidence in the Lord. Because this is a choice. It's, it's something that we've got to be intentional about. It's not going to happen by accident. Jeremiah says it's something that we have to make happen. We have to make sure that, that we're doing it, that we're being active to place our, 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 our confidence in, and our hope in the Lord. And, and if our hope and confidence isn't in the Lord, then it's in the wrong thing. Some of you might think, but, but Pastor Blake, you have, you have no idea what I'm up against. You have no idea the situation that I'm facing. And it's, it's really easy for you to stand up on that stage and be on the outside looking in and tell me how I'm supposed to act and behave and what I'm supposed to do. And I would just encourage you and say that, that it's in these areas of our life that, that God will allow these kinds of experiences to happen because he's wanting to develop our faith. Dave Willis says that faith is a choice to trust God even when the road ahead seems uncertain. I can guarantee you to that little teenage girl from Nazareth, when the angel appeared to her that day, the road ahead, it seemed uncertain. She started off with a question, how can this be? She started off with concern, but then later she arrived at a place of confidence, knowing what God had called her to. And because she decided to put her trust in the Lord, she was able to rejoice. Consider the outcome of choosing to live our lives this way, the, the way that Mary did. Jeremiah says that we'll be like a tree planted along the riverbank, that, that we're going to be unbothered by the heat, that when the heat gets turned up, we're not even going to notice. That, that long months of drought don't cause worry because our roots are deep and we have a power source from which we can draw. Our leaves are going to stay green. And then it says, you will never stop producing fruit. That means even out of season. For those of us who choose to live this way, our lives are going to continue to be productive, even when they're not supposed to be. Even when people on the outside looking at like, they're, they're going to go, how are you doing this? How, how is this happening? This doesn't make any sense. And it's all going to be because we chose to trust in the Lord his word, his plan for our life. So here's the guarantee. When, when we put God first and when we pray and when we seek his will and when we choose to put our hope and confidence in him, then what's gonna happen is he's gonna meet us at the point of our need. And when that happens, we'll be able to experience joy even in the midst of the most anxiety-riddled circumstances. Psalm 94, 19, the psalmist writes, when doubts filled my mind, 
your comfort gave me renewed hope and cheer. In another translation, it says, when anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. See, Mary knew this to be true that first Christmas. And you and I, we can have the same experience this Christmas. Mary responded, oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You and I, we can have that same joy by simply choosing to trust Jesus today. Maybe for some of us in the room, maybe watching online, it's to start by trusting him with our life. If you'd like to do that this morning, I want to invite you to pray this simple prayer with me. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, I admit that I'm a sinner and that I'm lost without you. I believe that Jesus died in my place, making a way for us to have a relationship. And today I choose to follow Jesus in his way the rest of my life. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Christ Walk Church podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. To find out more information about Christ Walk Church, including our service times, how to connect with us on social media, and the ministry opportunities we have for you and your family, simply visit our website at thechristwalk.com. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget, because of Jesus, the best is yet to come.